0: It's unfathomable what is happening. And the fact that this administration has made no assurances that we will do what is necessary in order to get those Americans out of Kabul and the rest of Afghanistan, regardless of whether the Taliban intends to allow them to move to the airport.
1: It is the week of August 16th, and welcome to a special Afghanistan episode of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements, between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. Today we have Jennifer Caffarella, Visiting Fellow and Research Director at the Institute for the Study of War, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Nelson, Visiting Fellow at NSI and Professor of Military Science at George Mason University, and the former Deputy Director of the Commander's Action Group at US Central Command under General Joe Votel, Matthew Hyman, NSI Director of Strategy and Senior Fellow and Chairman Cyber and Privacy Working Group at the Regulatory Transparency Project, Michael Gottlieb, who served in Afghanistan from 2010 to 2011, Visiting Fellow at NSI and a former Associate Counsel and Special Assistant to President Barack Obama. And I'm Jamil Jaffer, NSI's Founder and Executive Director. We've gathered today to discuss the ongoing situation in Afghanistan as it stands at 3.30 p.m. on Tuesday, August 17th. Obviously an evolving situation, but today we'll be looking at the short and long-term national security implications of Taliban rule and the collapse that took place over the weekend of the Afghan government. Well, let me start with you, uh, Jennifer Cafarella. Talk to us about uh, what's going on right now in Afghanistan. Obviously, uh, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. government has now committed yet another thousand troops uh, to the airport. Uh, we're working feverishly to get our people, Americans and our Afghan allies, out. Uh, pursuant to what the president said. Uh, the situation um, in Kabul as, as well as elsewhere is deteriorating rapidly uh, with the Taliban having taken what looks like full control of the country. Talk to us about what's going on on the ground as far as you can tell um, and what should people be thinking about about the situation in Afghanistan as it stands today.
0: Sure. Thanks, Jamil. So the situation, as you've mentioned, is focused on Kabul right now, although the rest of the country is also coming under the clutches of the Taliban as it consolidates control. Uh, But Kabul is the focus not only because it is the capital, of course, but also because of the ongoing situation at the Kabul International Airport. Um, The 82nd Airborne Division headquarters has arrived with reinforcements to Kabul Airport and is responsible for securing the airport, both on the military and civilian sides, in order to enable both military evacuation uh, to ongo or to resume, um, but also to enable more civilian evacuations. And what we've seen is not only a mad dash to the airport um, in the last 72 hours by desperate Afghan civilians, um, but we, we've also seen um, a really remarkable and I think encouraging response from ordinary Americans, recognizing the failure of our elected leaders to do what is right and necessary in Afghanistan. And we've seen this groundswell of support from, you know, normal American citizens to raise funds and to charter private charter flights uh, to enable the evacuation of as many of our Afghan allies and partners as humanly possible. How long we're going to have at Kabul International Airport to continue those withdrawals depends in part on whether the Taliban makes good on the promise that it has issued today, not to um, apply military pressure on the airport, but also to allow other American citizens who remain in Afghanistan, including in Kabul, um, to actually reach the airport. Because unfortunately, there are still Americans that had sheltered in place that are not yet present at the airport. Getting them out is, of course, going to be a huge responsibility for the American forces um, at the air base, but a very delicate issue in coming days.
1: So Jennifer, uh, let me understand a couple of things. So one, uh, as I understand, there's there's there may be a, a, around 10,000 Americans actually in air in Afghanistan, potentially in the Kabul area, trying to get to the airport and get out uh, on these on uh, now out of the, the now American held airport. But Um, the commitment the Taliban have now made, uh, does that apply to our Afghan allies and our SIVs also, or does it only apply to American citizens in country?
0: Look, we're already seeing very devastating reports coming out of Kabul that the Taliban is going door to door to round up individuals who worked with U.S. forces to gain intelligence on individuals who worked with U.S. forces, and even in some cases to target female Afghan journalists whom they seek to silence as they consolidate power. So. It certainly is clear that the Taliban intends to pay retribution against those who worked with us. Um, I do not think the promise to allow Americans to evacuate um, applies to our allies. I think that's deeply tragic and one of the hallmarks uh, of this national security failure.
1: So, Mike, uh, one of the things I'm interested to get your thoughts on is, you know, the president, you know, yesterday went on TV and said, look, I I, the buck stops with me. I take responsibility. I've made a decision. I'm going to stick with my decision. We are pulling out. Uh, but we're also going to make sure that Americans and, and our allies get out or get to third countries where, where we can where we can process uh, our allies, to, uh, whether that's here in the U.S. or elsewhere. Um, is this is it realistic? Can we can we realistically get out uh, both um, all the Americans that are there, these potentially up to upwards of 10,000? And what about our Afghan allies? The numbers I've seen have varied from. Uh, you know the the eighteen thousand or so that remain of the SIV eligible folks um, in country, but then there's this larger group of sort of folks that were may not be SIV eligible, but were still allies and worked with us up to I've heard up to sixty thousand uh, potential. Uh, can we realistically one safeguard the ability of those folks to get to the airport, well, to, get, well, to get to Kabul from wherever they are, get to the airport in Kabul, um, and then get them out of the country? You know the president set a deadline of September 11th, 2021, when all Americans have to be out. Is he going to stick with? That? that date? And if he does, can we get all those people on planes and out to whether it's to a third party country or to the United States? That Just as a logistical matter, is that realistic?
2: So I, I think Jennifer brought up a good point that, that you know we have these dubious claims
1: from the, the Taliban that they
2: are going to provide safe passage to American citizens. Uh, we saw throughout an 18-month negotiation process that the Taliban repeatedly would violate the terms that they had agreed to. And that, right. that was when we had leverage and had sensors and had the ability to see what they were doing. Right now, we have line of sight from the airfield to determine what the Taliban is and is not doing. So General Donahue- Because we have nobody on the ground. Right. General Donahue and the 82nd Airborne can see anybody who's on the approach to Ichkaia. But as as we pointed out, getting just through Kabul, as we've, I think we've seen video of uh, Taliban going uh, door to door looking for people. Uh, I have firsthand reports from some Afghans that I know that they are, have left their residences because they're afraid of, of documents that trace back to their houses as these searches are going on. But that says nothing right. about the checkpoints throughout the country. You can't get from mazar sharif to Kabul. You can't get from, from the outlying provinces. Um, I think as well to your question about who is care- guaranteed, even if they, they abide by that, that safe passage guarantee. Number one, a lot of these American citizens are not going to be Anglo-looking aid workers. They're going to be dual citizens. Right. And are the Taliban going to recognize the citizenship claims of people who are also Afghan citizens? Mm. Second of all, these these, uh, the, the Afghan nationals who assisted us, does that apply just to, there's been a lot of focus uh, played on the, on the interpreters, because uh, that is a, a large portion of our allies. But I have right. two former camp workers from Camp Bolki up in mazar sharif who are not interpreters, but they, one of them has been working for years to get an SIV and has not had right. success despite multiple contacts from me and other people endorsing it. So I think as you get further and further away, the Taliban will most likely have a more interpretive role of who was a collaborator with the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. government seems to have a less liberal interpretation of who is worthy of his SIV.
1: And, and Mike, do you worry about, you know, these people being rounded up? I mean, we've heard, you know, all sorts of claims about what might be going on with the Taliban going to door to door. But we know when they had when they were in power last, 20 years ago, um, when they found people that they were that were that they were they uh, concerned about, they would round them up, put them in stadiums and execute them, right? I mean, we know mm-hmm. what they did, the bombing of but I mean, it was to human, you know, actual individuals that we saw this happen. Are we concerned that we're going to see similar behavior uh, come out of the Taliban? We know that they don't abide by their commitments, right? I mean, uh, we, they haven't even they haven't had to. Um, do we worry about that kind of situation? I mean, could we see literally a rounding up of American, what they see as collaborators, we see as allies, um, and, and being sort of executed on masse? Is that is that a real possibility? And if so, what does the Biden administration do about that on the day that uh, the day something like that happens? Well, I, I
2: think that's a very realistic possibility. And one of the things to consider is we just saw the first Taliban official press conference. They have gotten much more media set, right? They are yeah. saying all the right things. Don't worry. It's just a transition of power uh, and everything's going to be fine. Okay. So the Taliban, looking at the Taliban as though it's a monolith that Mullah Baradar can give a directive mm. and that the individual Taliban fire, fighter in Helmand province is going to abide by that is probably right. not realistic. So there are going to be those low level or, or regional actors who are probably going to exact retribution on their own, whether it is Taliban right. policy or not. So I think it's highly likely we're going to see. It. We saw, you know, I can't confirm the, the validity of these, but I've seen video from from uh, Kandahar of people executed outside of their homes. Uh, We know that members of NDS units who were resisting were executed en masse. Uh, We've seen reports of commandos, my former partners, executed en masse. So I think it's very likely that that we're going to see these these acts of retribution. Whether it's the soccer stadium of the 90s, I don't know. Yeah.
1: So, Matthew, you know, uh, you and I wrote a paper uh, about a year ago Uh, about the potential... You know consequences of, of the U.S. not doing the right thing and sticking by our commitment to Afghanistan. Well, here we are. Uh, the president decided to withdraw. We, we, we've largely pulled out with the exception of this seven thousand troops. We've put back in um, to to effectuate the withdrawal. Um, what are the long term consequences? What are the what's the impact on our allies on one hand, uh, and and our adversaries on the other? Well, it's disastrous. Um, in terms of our allies, they will
3: take note, and particularly, you know. I would say our allies that are in tough neighborhoods. So if we think about our allies that are located near China or our allies that are in the Middle East, um, they will note that, you know, as as comes up from time to time, uh, America doesn't keep its commitments or uh, America certainly doesn't have the stomach for a long term fight. And so our allies, when we ask for their help and we need them to stick their neck on the line for us. We're going to be much more reticent to do so. And, you know, reverse, the reverse positions. If we're Israel, if we were all Israelis, or we were all um, from the UAE, or we were all from Singapore, and America came knocking on our door and said, Please help us with this, or take a risk on this intelligence operation, or engage with us in this fight against this uh, against Iran or some malefactor. How much do we really want to get in the middle of? This? Do we really believe that America is going to back us long haul? And then for our enemies, well, they're laughing right now, um, because this is an unforced error. Um, They're looking at this and they're saying, this is terrific. If I'm Russia, if I'm China, if I'm Iran, uh, frankly, if I'm Pakistan, there's all kinds of fantastic opportunities that have opened up because our allies will take a step back from us. And, um, you know, Afghanistan's now a bit of a free for all in terms of opportunity for them, whether it's China thinking about Belt and Road and just China being happy anytime something goes wrong for the U.S. because they view it as a zero sum game. Or it's Iran or Russia where there is actual regional advantage and Pakistan where there's regional advantage vis-a-vis having sort of a client state in Pakistan that helps them um, bulk themselves up vis-a-vis India. This is good for all the people we don't like and it's bad for the people we care about.
1: Across the board but Matthew what, I mean, let me, let me sort of give you what I think what might be the administration's best pushback on this which is look um, that all sounds great and it all sounds great oh we're backing off and everyone you know our allies will be upset and our, and our enemies will be emboldened but isn't the opposite true've we've, we've been there for 20 years we did commit to our allies we've been there for 20 years they, they aren't willing to pick up their their part of it as Jake Sullivan and, and President Biden both said very publicly it's the Afghans fault they're not willing to do their part. Um, and and what the real message to allies is, hey, we're making that pivot we told you we'd make to Asia. We really are going to use our forces to protect you all um, against the larger China threat. Um, and we're going to, we'll commit to you for 20 years, 20 plus years, but we just won't commit forever. You've got to take on some responsibility. So isn't this really consistent with the message that we're moving away from this focus on Central Asia and the Middle East? Um, to a more of an Asia focus, and we're willing to put our forces and our might behind that pivot. And also, um, you know, look, it's not a, it's not free. You've got to do your part too. Why isn't that the right takeaway here? Well, I know you're playing devil's advocate.
3: We know it's not the right takeaway uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, The commitment in terms of uh, personnel uh, to the Afghanistan effort over the last couple of years, as we all know, has been relatively small. We haven't had 100,000 forces there for years and years and years. Uh, What we had there was in in or around 5,000 over the last couple of years. We haven't had a death, a military death in Afghanistan for the last, I believe, year and a half. So this notion that this was this huge drain on America's resources to go toe-to-toe with China uh, has always been a bill of goods. It is a bill of goods. You know whether or not we had a de minimis presence in Afghanistan does not turn the tide. vis-à-vis our competition with China. So I think that's always been a false narrative. Um, and 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 so you know the pivot has certainly happened, um, but the pivot doesn't mean we abandon all of our commitments around the world. Um, because if that were true, that would mean we should be pulling up from all sorts of places around the world where we remain, and rightfully so. We still have many troops in Europe. We have many troops in South Korea. We have commitments all around the world because that's what a superpower does. And I think the idea that somehow we will reposition forces in Asia um, and Asia exclusively is um, doesn't make any strategic sense because that's not how China's doing the world. China's not assuming that the theater of competition between it and the U.S. is Asia. China views itself as a global yeah. player, which means the U.S. and China have to play globally and compete
1: globally. Fair enough. Well, so, Jennifer, I mean, look, you've, you've looked at this issue from a counterterrorism perspective, right? And one of the claims on the table has been, look, we don't, we're not sure that al-Qaeda or ISIS is coming back in Afghanistan. The Taliban have, have made commitments about that on their own. Um, And, you know, we can do counterterrorism operations anyways over the horizon. Right. We've done it for years in Africa and other parts of the world. No big deal. This is going to be fine. Don't worry about a return to, you know, the pre 2001 9-11 era. Um, It'll all be fine and we can deal with it if it's not. Um, Is that is that right? I mean, that has been the message I think that the Biden administration has kind of tried to convey um, What do you think about that from a counterterrorism perspective?
0: Well, from a counterterrorism perspective, it is the definition of wishful thinking. Um, but I do want to actually step back and address the larger geopolitical issues here and then get yeah, back to please. counterterrorism, because sure. I would offer that I think the situation is even worse um, than the very important points Matthew has already mentioned. We're not just talking about America abandoning our partners in Afghanistan, although that is happening and it is very devastating. We are talking about the Biden administration potentially abandoning over 10,000 American citizens Mm -hmm. in a war zone. What does that say about the leadership of the free world if we are no longer even willing to do what is necessary to protect our own. It's unfathomable what is happening. And the fact that this administration has made no assurances that we will do what is necessary in order to get those Americans out of Kabul and the rest of Afghanistan, regardless of whether the Taliban intends to allow them to move to the airport, is completely unconscionable. It does not only affect our global image, it affects our faith in our government that Americans can enlist in this cause can support their elected leaders and trust not only that those elected leaders will do their best to achieve victory, which is never certain, but to trust that those elected leaders will protect their own.
1: Well, let's actually want to come back. I just want to I want to come back to the counterterrorism boy, but I want to wanna focus on what you just said. So let's suppose the Biden administration were to ensure how whatever by whatever method, even though we know that there's no way we can maintain the ground lines of communication or actually get anybody out of anywhere but Kabul, right? Because all they've decided to do is the airport, right? Let's suppose somehow we magically got all of the Americans out. Is it better or worse if we got every single last American out? Right, except for that apparently that one hostage being held by the Haqqani network, which which we haven't negotiated about or solved yet, um, unfortunately. Um, let's see, we're able to get every other American out, and then we bail. We're like, okay, every American's gone, we're out. Afghan allies have been great, better or worse, Jennifer, than the current situation where maybe some Americans get left behind, uh, and and along with along with some of our allies.
0: Well, you're setting me up with difficult framing on this question. I'm going to answer it anyway. But the first requirement of the United States is to protect our own citizens. Yeah. That's what that means. Now, I and many others believe that that does not come at the expense of our partners and that it is necessary, possible, and very much still within our reach to do better than that. So I think we need to make sure that we do not set up false you know, trade-offs that do not exist. Yes, we have decided to limit our military operation to the airport. There's nothing inevitable about that. That's a choice that the, that the administration made. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, what kinds of additional military resources or coercive pressure on the Taliban? which does not need to include major military operations, but can include things yeah. like airstrikes and a number of other coercive tools, can the United States put on the table to ensure that they allow the evacuation of Americans and our partners?
1: Well, let me ask you about that. So, so let's say we put these coercive tools on the table, right? The president, as, as the race surged, many more troops than we, he wanted to have in the country. There are now 7,000 at the airport, or soon to be 7,000. Um, we've, we've begun launching airstrikes uh, in, in significant quantities. Uh, so some of that is beginning... Um, what kind of a military effort do you think it would take to effectively get all the Americans in country out? I mean, do we have to go, you know, sort of run convoys to Kandahar, run convoys to Jalalabad? And if so, what kind of a footprint do we need to undertake to have those convoys be safe? Or is it simply a matter of putting pressure on the table and saying, if you touch one of these convoys, we're going to rain holy hell down upon you. And if we do do that, are we talking about a military commitment that's going to go past one month from now when the president said we will be out done by a date certain?
0: Look, I think it starts with the issuance of a credible threat, right? That there will be consequences Mm -hmm. and we are prepared to deliver on those consequences. What kind of additional military operation in terms of convoys and security measures would be necessary is not something I can tell yet because we don't even know where all the Americans are, certainly not from the the unclassified level. Um, And from what I understand, we're still struggling because so many Americans sheltered in place and have gone offline for the very valid fear of getting discovered um, in part... At our know, direction.
1: The at the State Department's direction. At the, right,
0: Department at the State
1: Department's direction. Department. So, Mike, uh, you know, look, you've been involved in some of this stuff in the past. I mean, is 7,000 troops enough to do what we need to do? Can we, can we effectuate what we need to? Is the president going to need to commit more forces? Is the commitment need to going need to go, gonna need to go past September 11th? If Jennifer's right, and we at the, at the minimum, we got to get the Americans out, and as you and she and I and Matthew all agree, we've got to do a lot more with our Afghan allies, is this thing going to go past September 11th. If we're going to maintain even the most basic commitment of a nation to its own citizens, and then beyond that, our moral commitment to our allies, uh, and if so, are we going to have to negotiate with the Taliban uh, to make this happen? And what does that negotiation look like when we have, as you point out, no chits left in the in the in the hopper?
2: So I think the biggest problem we have is right now everything is based on the good faith of a bad faith actor, uh, and <laughs> right. we have uh, we've decided we've decided to go about this with an entirely inverse planning process to make the decision, to execute the decision, and then realize the impacts of the decision and the subsequent things that we need to do along the way. Um, The biggest problem I think we have to reopening any kind of military footprint is look at a map of Afghanistan and show me the country that's going to open up their air corridors to us to do offensive operations there again. We've already seen that the Russians are exerting influence on the Tajiks and the Uzbeks to deny us any access the Pakistanis are likely to try to uh, play nefarious or duplicitous games with us as they did all through as the they conflict. Have. But right. now exactly. even more right. with their right. outrageous statements by their national security advisor, um, you know, we right now have air corridors to allow for humanitarian relief slash evac. If we start right. saying, Hey, we want to uh, fly, you know, stuff out of the Indian ocean to do massive strikes. I'm not sure that's going to work. Um, yeah. So in addition to the problem of extracting these 10,000 Americans that we have that need to find their own way, I don't know if you saw the message that was put out by the embassy today, uh, make your way to the airport, we can't guarantee your safety. You're on your own, get in a taxi, hope the Taliban doesn't stop you or, or, or uh, kidnap you. Um, I think nobody's thought through the problem of what does the last C-17 taking off from North Kai look like? Is that 19-year-old paratroopers you know, pushing back Afghans at gunpoint so they can get on the aircraft and leave? Is it turning over security of the people there to the Taliban? You know, Srebrenica style, watching them take the civilians off as we fly away. How do we extract ourselves from that airfield when there are still people who are going to want to get out? And I don't think anybody's thought of that. Or if they are right now, they have no solution to the problem. Because once again, we made the decision before we had the mechanisms in place.
1: So, Matthew, you know you you were you were on the ground in Iraq um, when the U.S. was was um, had its forces there, um, and you saw the departure in twenty thirteen. Uh, you weren't there necessarily in Iraq at the time, but you watched from afar the, the departure of American forces in Iraq, and then the need to put American forces back in um, after ISIS established its caliphate and sprinted across the Syrian Iraq border. And I know Jennifer knows a lot about this this conflict, also. Uh, uh, is is it is that the wrong analogy to draw here? I mean, obviously the parallels are not identical. Iraq's a very different situation. Um, how do we how, what lessons should the Biden administration having having the President Biden himself having served and a lot of his a lot of his staff having served in the in the Obama administration, what lessons should we have taken away from the Iraq debacle in 2013? And uh, now being where we are, whether they should have taken those lessons already or not, what what should we do now? I mean, Mike makes a great point. I mean, this could be very ugly. And as ugly as it's already been, it could be a lot worse on the day we decide to finally pull out and leave people behind. What does that look like? What lessons can we learn? And what, if anything, should the Biden administration do at this point? Should they, should the president just admit he was wrong? This was a mistake, and we're gonna be there now for another six months to do this right or a year to do this right? Or or what? Like what do you, what do you do now if you're if you've got this this situation in front of you, what do you tell the president he ought to do now, Matthew? Well, it's
3: an awful circumstance because they've they've made so many stupid mistakes and painted themselves into this awful corner that the, the number of options they have are limited and they're bad. I mean, so you ask, you know, what was the lesson of Iraq in 2013? And, and in some respects, this is also the lesson that many have had to learn in Afghanistan, when the Russians left, when the US CIA left, and then had to come back. And that is uh, fumbling the end game. You know, we fumbled the end game because we were—I mean, to use an old phrase—we were penny wise and pound foolish. We were in such a hurry to hit a deadline or to claim we're saving X dollars or whatever it was. That what we weren't willing to do today, we paid for tenfold, a thousandfold later, either in lives lost, dollars spent, distraction from other commitments. And so, you know, there aren't a lot of great options. And I think Mike raises an excellent point. How does the last soldier sort of... Walk backwards or fly backwards out of that country as they try and flee. How do we get the last American free? And what's amazing to me when I think about this is a lot of newspapers and editorial writers have said, "Oh, this is the worst, uh, you know, U.S. national security event since the fall of Saigon." And I, I fundamentally disagree with that. I think the the breach of executive duty here is far graver than that. I mean, if we're focused on the executive. And that's because when Saigon fell, it fell after the Nixon administration had negotiated a deal, and Congress later in time, a year and a half later, decided to stop sending funds to support our allies in Vietnam. They just so the money dried up, and we had to leave. This was a choice. The Biden administration made a choice. They made several amazingly blockheaded choices, and so to your question is. President Biden going to admit he's wrong? I don't think he can. I don't think it's in him. Uh, it would be an amazing event if he came back to that podium in the West Wing and said, you know, everything I said on Monday it was all screwed up. I mean, that would be uh, a reckoning with the truth.
1: I just don't think we're going to see that. And I mean, so he could I, have I, done it on Monday, right? I mean, he could have done he it. On could Monday. Have. He, could have, he could have come in out for the weekend and said, look, we, we got this thing wrong. We need to stay longer. Uh, It's not never ending, but 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 leaving our allies this way or leaving our own people, as Jennifer's point would be crazy. We're not going to do that. We'll do this right and get people out the right way.
3: Yeah, 100 percent. And I you know, I have expected him instead of it was an amazing uh, statement in that he busied himself blaming everyone but himself. He blamed Trump. And fair enough, Trump's policies on Afghanistan and the 2020 negotiations were a joke and horrible for the country. He then blamed our Afghan allies. And at no point did he say, Oh, we could have taken a longer view or we could have done things slightly differently. There was it was almost as if he was blameless. And he talked about being boxed in by the Trump negotiations of 2020, which is laughable because the Biden administration, rightly or wrongly, has walked away from all sorts of Trump policy decisions and agreements the Trump administration made. So anytime you hear someone in the Biden administration say, We were boxed in by what Trump did. I would say you didn't feel boxed in about, you haven't felt boxed in about leaving the JCPOA with Iran. You haven't felt boxed in about the Trump administration's decision to leave the Paris Climate Accords. Why would you feel boxed in to do something so fundamentally
1: stupid and tragic? Well, so so Jennifer, I mean, how do we, we, where do we go from here? I mean, it strikes me that Matthews laid out a a, a potent argument for why the Biden administration really screwed this up. You explained uh, why. Uh, this is a complete failure of executive responsibility to our own people, much less our Afghan allies, much less the 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 efforts we put in over these last twenty years. I mean, wh- where do we go from here? I mean, it, it's easy. I, I suppose it's easy for all of us to take potshots at the Biden administration um, about how they how they screwed this up and they could have done better and should do better and you know and, and could still do better tomorrow. But if if given their given the president's tripling down, you know maybe it was doubling down now it's tripling down on. His policy. He did say the buck stops with him. He did take responsibility. Um, although he, he did, you know, it did appear to shift blame to everybody else. But he probably said, Okay, look at the end of the day this is my choice. I've made the decision. We're still doing it. Assuming we're gonna keep the decision in place, we're not gonna reverse course. What can we do to make the situation even marginally better?
0: Look, I do think the framing of your question is important because while the blame game can be tempting, and while we even here on this call have, you know, assigned plenty. Um, Right now, we are in a national security crisis of epic proportions. It is time to come together as a nation and get the hell out of this. So what needs to happen is we need to act. The president needs to authorize whatever the Defense Department needs in order to get the Americans out safely from Kabul. The president needs to, in my personal view, step forward and take responsibility for this tragedy. And while I may agree that that doesn't seem likely, that is the bar for American leadership. It does not change simply because this particular president has fallen short. He needs to step forward and take responsibility. So, too, in my personal view, should senior me- members of this administration, in part, to show the American people that they understand that what is transpiring in Afghanistan is unacceptable and that they will fix it. We need to forge ahead. That starts with stabilizing the security situation at the airport for obvious reasons. It's the most urgent challenge, but there's far more the United States can also do through diplomacy and bilateral relations with other countries, to marshal support for the refugees who we need to get out. It's one thing to get them out of Kabul and Afghanistan in general. It's another thing to get them settled. And we need to be doing far more to incentivize that, both through yeah. our own commitments and then working with additional allies and partners abroad.
1: Yeah. Look, I think that's, that's, a, that's a great point to wrap up on. Uh, thank you uh, to Mike, Matthew, Jennifer, for being here with us today. Um, obviously, a very troubling situation uh, a, a, a moral and national security catastrophe for our nation um, uh, there will be more to talk about on this over the next coming days weeks and months um, so we'd love to have all of you back and have a follow-up conversation uh, hopefully we do find a way hopefully we do make the kind of commitments Jennifer that you're talking about um, and we do get those Americans out and our Afghan allies out safely um, and and frankly we, we demonstrate that America does stand by its commitments even though today it looks like we're unwilling to do that and, and you know for an administration that was deeply critical, of the prior administration, and the, frankly, the failings of the prior president to admit his own errors. And when he made mistakes, uh, this administration doesn't seem much more willing to do that on their own. Hopefully, the president realizes the the irony of that um, and will eventually come out and admit that this was a mistake. And that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. For more on the latest developments, be sure to follow along on our blog, the Skiff, and our Twitter, at Mason Natsik. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Haley Lernahan and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.